We will be going for lunch soon, but just in two more sessions. Um, I really found that interesting, and I think it's very important considering that we just come off the back of elections and all we heard about were jobs, jobs, jobs. And my question all the time was, where and how? And this sounds like a practical solution that can be explored. Next, we have our speaker who's going to give us a TED Talk, Jill Rain, who's a senior policy advisor and has decades of experience. Today, she will be giving us her knowledge about prescribed assets in South Africa. Thank you, Jill. Okay, good afternoon. Can you hear me? No, no, no. Oh, voila. Got that. Okay? Any better? That sounds better. Excellent. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the reality of prescribed pension fund assets and other interventions. The reason being that prescribed assets are a particularly South African phenomenon. This document is 30 years old. Uh, unfortunately, I've got a personalized version. Cost four rand. I think people underestimate how different the fixed income industry in South Africa would be were it not for the Jakobs Commission, all 37 pages of it, and the impact that it had on the fixed income industry in South Africa. So what I'm going to talk about... <coughs> Um, I'll start with prescribed assets, what they were and what they did to the South African industry um, after they were abolished. Talk about prudential regulations, priority sector lending and directed credit, and then local asset status, which is a particular South Af uh, sorry, African phenomenon. Should I try this? Is that better? Aha. Uh -huh. All right. Can we turn this one off? Okay, so did you miss all the exciting stuff about 1988? Can I continue? Um, so, prescribed assets. Um, Okay, so this was, a raise, this was raised in the um, ANC election manifesto. Um, and what it said was investigate the introduction of prescribed assets on financial institution regulatory framework for socially productive investments, etc. So the question is a requirement to invest a proportion of funds in instruments such as government or state-owned corporation bonds or possibly specific projects. The concern of the industry was for retirement funds to become an instrument of state policy while avoiding the discipline of financial markets. And that's the key, the discipline of financial markets. Plus, pension fund trustees have a fiduciary responsibility, and so do asset managers, um, and they would end up with lower than market returns, the concern. Um, so just to emphasize why should pension funds to be concerned, if you look at the preamble to Reg 28, a fund has a fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of its members. The duty 
is that you need to earn an adequate risk-adjusted return suitable for the fund-specific member pro profile, liquidity needs, and liabilities. So there's been a lot of discussion around whether infrastructure is a suitable asset class for pension funds and guaranteed annuity liabilities. And the answer is yes, I don't think that's a contentious at all. What is contentious is whether it should be local infrastructure assets. Is it prudent? When you look at infrastructure, if we start at the bottom, it can be corporate, and that would be utilities, state-owned corporations. It may be specific projects, which might be take or pay, i.e. availability-based, um, a la the um, IPP projects or renewable energy projects or demand risk, toll roads, ports, airports, or other types of infrastructure funding, general use of proceeds, and these are the kind of infrastructure bonds that you see in Kenya and Swaziland, where they commit to fund infrastructure in various sectors. If we look at the asset management industry in South Africa, there's some big numbers, but they're not free assets, they're liabilities. So the PRC, okay, it's defined benefit. Long-term insurers, 2.9 trillion. Um, after, yeah, 2.1 trillion with the PRC. The official private sector self-administered pension fund, so that's Transnet Pension Fund, Eskom Pension Fund, Post Office, etc. another 2 trillion. 1.5 trillion sitting in the private pension funds. But they're not, as I said, free assets. Um, and there's a liability, the liability being the net present value of future pensioner payments. They're not, it's not a wealth, these are not sovereign wealth funds. And interestingly enough, if you look at the sovereign wealth fund in Botswana, which came out of the proceeds of diamonds, that's actually 100% invested outside Botswana. The other thing to note is we look at the stock. Total outside the, bank, the, the banking sector, it's about 10.96 trillion. Sounds like a lot of money available. Um, but remember that they're accumulated over a long period of time, a percentage of salary. Um, and any changes in asset allocation has potential systemic risks. A sale of equities to move out of growth assets into, say, fixed income would have huge wealth effects across the industry. I think the other thing to bear in mind, it takes a long time for these pension assets to be built up. Um, the average pension contribution rate now is around 12% as opposed to 20% um, in the, the good old defined benefit days. And that's largely been driven by the increased cost of death and disability cover. Um, I've shown you the financial sector deployment, but I'm going to come back to that. So I'd rather let's go into history. Um, so, 1958 to 1989. So the Pension Funds Act was introduced in 1956. Um, 1958, that was the first, um, they, they, it was really, um, it was a, in those days, it was prudential to invest in semi-government institutions um, and former homelands government government guaranteed and specific approved bonds. Pension funds, 53% of total total assets. Life companies, 33. The Public Investment Corporation, 
it, as I said, it was originally intended as a protection for policyholders and pension fund members. Remember where Enron's pension fund was invested? But what were the consequences? So if you look at the 1960s, um, equities, nominal return 11.3, pre-scribes, other government bonds, 4.9. Inflation in those days was only 3%. So you still had a positive real return. Unfortunately, life in the 1970s wasn't so good. Um, inflation was up at 11.3%. <clears throat> you had a negative real return in bonds of 4%. But more importantly, you had an opportunity cost to equities, um, which is significant because of inflation and also the negative real returns, well, as a result of the negative real returns. So you had an opportunity cost to equities of 8.6% negative. In the 1980s, inflation was higher, but fixed income performed a bit better. Um, a lot of that was driven by the um, movement in the gold price. <clears throat> 1988, we had the Jakobs Com Commission or Committee, and its role was to investigate distortions and inefficiencies in the so-called guilt market. In those days, there was a dual guilt market. You had the open outcry market on the JSE guilt floor, and you had the bank market, which traded on screen, but the two didn't trade with each other. It was illiquid, um, and so the Yarkov Committee was, was put together to address some of these issues and also to look at the prescribed asset requirements, which resulted in outright abolition. After the Jakobs Committee, we got the Primary Dealers Financial Markets Advisory Board straight, which we know well, um, started to emerge in the form of Unix Core out of the um, Gills Clearinghouse, um, and we had the Bond Markets Association. What was also important was changes in asset allocation. So if you go back to the late 1980s, and I've given you 1986 and 88 because 87 was the, was the crash, so it was a bit distorted. So if you look at pension funds, you know, 86, 43% was in, in basically prescribed assets. But if you move to 2016, it's fallen to 22%. Um, with long-term insurers, around 22%, it's halved 9%. Um, so it had a significant impact, the abolition of prescribes. But I think more important was the change in the South African savings industry. I don't think if prescribes had not, well, if prescribes had not been abolished, I'm not sure that coronation would exist. Seriously. Um, <laughs> funnily enough. So the abolition of prescribes resulted in the emergence of independent third-party asset managers. Because remember, during the era of prescribed assets, provident funds were man managed by the life companies for a very specific reason. You only had to have 33% of your assets in government bonds as opposed to 53%. Um, there was also the Margot Commission um, in the late 80s, which had a big impact on, on the industry. But prior to, well, in the late 80s, the asset management industry was the life companies. But what we saw emerging after the abolition of prescribes was investment freedom, the emergence of the likes of Coronation, Invam, African Harvest, the independence. What also happened is prior to this, you didn't have any peer review comparison. And you certainly didn't have um, benchmark performance. You know, the Alexander Forbes type 
surveys only emerged once you had um, these independent asset managers. Um, first of all, you had peer group performance, and then that moved once you had specialist um, multi-asset approach to benchmark performance. It also accelerated the move from defined benefit to defined contribution. It also had a huge impact on liquidity, because during the era of prescribes, bonds were valued at the lower of cost or redemption value. So most bonds um, were issued at a huge discount, very, very low coupon, um, and trading hardly happened because you never wanted to sell a bond at a loss, because if you did, you would have to top up your prescribes. So that meant that you would only sell if you could make a profit which in a rising interest rate environment, which is what we were living through in the 70s and 80s, um, was, you, know, you, were, you would have been creating losses. So the preference was hold to maturity. After 1989 abolition of prescribed, which was in the budget of March 1989, we had the bond consolidation. Um, the 144, 147, 150, 153, 157, they've all matured. Um, they were the triple-legged securities. Some of you may not know what triple-legged securities are. Um, prior to consolidation, there were 200 million here, a billion here, across the yield curve, no liquidity. Um, they consolidated into these benchmark bonds, but they still wanted to manage maturity risk. So each bond had three maturity dates, but they only split um, on the year before the first maturity date. So it was a way of managing. Since then, we've got a bit smarter and we do um, liability management and switch auctions. Um, yeah, so without this, these changes, you wouldn't have seen the liquidity that we currently see in the bond market. So if I move to prudential regulations, most countries have quantitative limits on their pension fund holdings. There are only eight out of 77, if you look at the OEC a survey um, that have no ceilings. Australia, Belgium, Canada, Netherlands, New Zealand, UK, US, and Malawi. Um, there's an upper limit on equities in 55 out of 77. Um, floors exist in Israel. Um, in New Zealand, 15% must be in growth assets. Certain countries forbid investing abroad, the Dominican Republic, Egypt, India, Nigeria, Ghana. Um, in the U.S., employer-related loans are not allowed. Restrictions on holdings of um, company, you know, pension fund company shares, Enron. Um, one of the questions is, have regulations reduced investment in infrastructure? Um, I think the, the worldwide problem is lack of projects. It's not only in South Africa where there's been lack of inf investment in infrastructure because of lack of projects. You know, in the renewables, there was 200 billion that went into renewables from the private sector because they were available, they were commercially viable, um, and there was a very well-developed framework. Um, but historically, a very small percentage of funds actually are in infrastructure, with the exceptions of Australia and Canada where you have about 6% of pension funds in infrastructure. I mean, one of the, the issues is DC funds. You know, if DC, DC funds are benchmarked against an all-share index, um, you know, illiquid assets are a bit of a problem. But having said that, 
remember that liquidity you only need at the margin. You don't need 100% liquidity. Um, but I think if you look at the empirical evidence, the impact of regulation on, on infrastructure investments has been marginal. If I go to priority sector lending, there are a lot of examples of priority sector lending. And most of these were in the 70s and they had to do with the growth of exports in emerging economies at the time. What is common with the, all these in Japan, Korea, China, Brazil was that they were trying to encourage exports and the net result was high degree of non-performing loans. Um, so it wasn't particularly successful. I'm not going to go through the detail. Um, but I think just to, to summarize, the experience of countries that have used directed credit programs show the overall costs of implementing such programs are enormous relative to the benefits. Um, high NPLs, inflation, misallocation of financial resources, high inflation, especially when the financing comes from the central bank. If you look at Africa, Zambia, Nigeria, Ghana, and Egypt, the pension funds were, were forced to invest in government vehicles with negative real returns resulting in basically bankruptcy of these institutions. So if you want to minimize the adverse effects of priority sector lending or directed credit, um, you need to identify projects with large spillover effects so that your social benefits exceed your private benefits. The preferred activity should have difficulty in obtaining finance from ordinary market sources and other words, high investment risks or high information costs like SME lending. Um, so if you look at the priority sector lending in Indian banks, I mean, that's driven by the need to invest in agriculture and SMEs, not infrastructure. Um, and the cost and scope of eligible assets should be small to minimize. So you don't want to go for 53% of, of a fund. Key thing, you need positive real return and you need fiscal di discipline. There have been two countries where um, this kind of directed investment has been successful. Singapore, Malaysia. And in both countries, the government was adamant that it was only prudent if there were positive real returns. Moving on to something which is particularly African. It's called local asset status. So what does this mean? In Ghana, 100% of pension fund money needs to be invested in Ghana. So that's local asset status. In South Africa, exchange control, 25, 20 to 25% of assets can be externalized. So we do have an implicit local asset requirement. Swaziland, interestingly enough, only 50%. Namibia, 45%. Botswana, 30 Namibia is particularly interesting. If you look at the right-hand side, Namibia has got a very high um, pension fund asset management, so asset, sorry, assets under management as a percentage of GDP relative to available local assets. The only other country that is of the same outlying degree is Australia. What is interesting is if you look at the percentage of Australian bonds that are held by foreigners, it's 85%. Doesn't make sense. But it's true, okay, Australia is a triple A rated country, so that probably has something to do with it. 
But you need to um, balance the availability of local assets, whether you insist on retaining funds within the country, whether you externalize the funds in the interest of optimum portfolio management, or do you try and make investments so attractive that you can attract foreign investment? South Africa is looking for $100 million of, of, of funding to come into the country to support infrastructure. Think about that. Um, we've got a very robust debt capital market. 1.9 trillion of government bonds, significant corporate bond market, admittedly at the moment in the current environment, largely banks and property companies. Um, State-owned companies and municipalities at the moment, um, for various reasons, they have difficulty in issuing bonds. So the question is, you know, should we be forcing funds to invest in state-owned corporations at the moment? You know, I think this whole issue with governance and their, their sustainable business models is not new. Um, but having said that, you know, financial institutions have participated. I've already spoken about the um, renewables, and you know, they hold at least 1.3 trillion of SOC bonds. We've seen public-private partnerships. In the 1990s, in the late 1990s, we had the N3 toll road, the N4 um, Maputo, the N4 Bakwena, Chapman's Peak two prisons, Albert Latuli Hospital. Who funded those? The pension funds. Projects were available. So as I said, of the 33 completed triple P projects since 1998, there's been 89 billion. And I mean, this has been funded by the privates, by the, by largely in the, in the 90s by the non-bank sector. But more recently, if you look at the budget of this year, um, only 2.2 of the 834 billion planned um, is, is intended to be funded by the private sector because most of the projects that are actually planned are not economic. They are socio-economic. At the moment, they are not giving the kind of returns that you would need from, for the private sector to participate. So we need more projects, we need proper project pre uh, pre uh, preparation. Just to compare pre-1989 to now, the difference is that then South Africa was a closed economy, small closed economy. Now we've got a highly interconnected world market, we've got South Africa as, a, as an open economy, about 38% of our sovereign bonds are held by foreigners. Um, if we become sub-investment great, at the, it looks like we'd probably only lose about $1.5 billion. Um, we're a member of G20. We've got Basel III, Basel IV. We've got solvency assessment and management, Twin Peaks. We've got a very robust regulatory framework. Um, so the question is, you know, prescribes, are they going to would they, would they, in the light of what I've just said, are they going to solve the problem that we face? I don't think it's lack of demand, it's lack of supply. Um, and one also needs to be aware of the unintended consequences. You know, what would happen if prescribes came back? You know, would we have 
and we don't know what the unintended consequences would be. When prescribed were abolished, we had no idea um, what it would mean for the dynamics of the asset management industry in South Africa. So, yeah, I just wanted to give you some perspective on that. Any, I mean, what are the alternatives to prescribed assets? You know, I mean, it, it's probably a little bit more nuanced than just yes or no. Is there another option that's under discussion? Is there something that's worked in a different country? Are there any alternatives to this? I think there are a lot of initiatives in place to actually um, develop projects. So if you look in the medium-term budget, 836 million was put aside for project preparation by the PICC, DBSA, and GTAC. We need projects that go through the PPP process so that they actually do are developed to be bankable. So a lot of work needs to go into project preparation. I think we, we probably also need to change our PPP model a bit. You know, one of the criticisms of the PPP model has been the equities held by the private sector. Um, on refinancing, the state is concerned about super profits. Um, you know, they had the same problem in the UK, and their solution was for the state to become a minority shareholder so that any profits from refi were shared between the public and private sectors. So there's some structural um, models which we need to um, use and not just, you know, take what we believe is a bit of a constraint at the moment, which is Regulation 16 under the um, Public Finance Management Act. I've got another question. Um, and thanks for the presentation. The pension schemes are allowed to invest overseas. Is there any requirement for them to hedge the associated currency risks? You say, are there requirements? Are, are, they allowed, are there any requirements to hedge the currency risks? No. Or no, I mean, that's, a, that's an investment decision. Um, yeah. Obviously, that does create volatility, because if you're unhedged, you know, you're going to have movement if the rand depreciates. But I would imagine, well, sorry, I'm not an asset management, so I'm not going to imagine anything. Um, <laughs> but, but presumably, the, presumably the, the members of the pension scheme take, those, take that risk then. Is that yeah, correct? they would take that, that risk, yes. One more question. Any more? No more questions. Thank you very much, Jill. A round of applause for her.